do not. Do not listen to your heart, Max, please. Is there not a sign that says employees must squash hands after flushing faces? It's a skin. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Pass the Hot Sauce, a Roswell podcast. I'm Aliza Ora. I'm Lisa Abigail. And I'm Lorena Rose. And we are here to talk about every single episode of the 1999 WB series Roswell, one episode at a time and spoiler free. Today we are discussing season two, episode two, Ask Not. According to an IMDb description that I have abridged because it was too long, this is the one where the new owner of the Alien Museum arouses suspicion for Max when he sees a device that has alien symbols on it. Max, Michael, and Isabel decide to investigate, although resentment abounds as Max struggles to take a leadership role. This episode was written by Ronald D. Moore. This is the first of nine episodes that he wrote for Roswell. You may also know him from Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Generation, Star Trek First Contact, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and Star Trek Voyager, or from Battlestar Galactica Resistance, Battlestar Galactica Razor, Battlestar Galactica Razor Flashbacks, Battlestar Galactica The Face of the Enemy, and Battlestar Galactica Original Flavor. Or you may know him from Outlander, or from Carnival, or from Mission Impossible 2. He was very busy, although clearly he had a niche. Yes, I was going to say, so uh, he definitely did a lot of space stuff, which aliens are kind of space stuff, so... Yeah, Star Trek has aliens in it, for sure. This episode was directed by Bruce Seth Green. This is the first of three episodes he directed. You may also know him from all of the late 90s and early 2000 things. Yes, Buffy, Angel, Dawson's Creek, Charmed. Or if you go back to the mid-90s, Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess. Or going back further, he did a bunch more things dating to the 70s. So he was like a, a grizzled old veteran by the time he got to Roswell. Uh, This episode originally aired on the 9th of October, 2000, and we open on Isabel standing in front of a window, DJing with her powers at the crashdown, which appears to be open for business, so... I know, what happened to not using um, their powers recreationally? She's just, like, mixing CDs out where anybody can see... Cool, cool. So I have a lot of issues with this scene, and one of which is that in the streaming and DVD versions, we do not get to hear Tarsha Vega's song, Be Yourself, which includes some fabulous lines like, and I quote, Go to a disco and hit the floor. Pretend that it's Studio 54. Dance like you never did dance before. If someone got beef, be the herbivore. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's fantastic. And instead of that, we got up in it by the collective. So, I mean, we, I would like to say we were robbed of a song that appeared on the, let's say, classic movie, The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle soundtrack. So, I'm just saying. Oh, that song sounds fantastic. You're going back now and watching them with the original music now, right, Lisa? I have been, yeah. And I do feel like it makes a difference. I mean, I still hate this scene no matter what song is playing, but um, I I enjoy the original song a lot more. Yeah. Um, It also, this this golly, this scene uh, gives us shirtless Max because we are, I guess, filling our quota of shirtless dudes that we have for season two now. 
Yes, so that the girls can ogle at the boys also. Yeah. So Max, thankfully, is running through the completely empty streets of Roswell or the streets where people just don't care when they see a teenage boy running around with blood smeared all over his chest. Oh, yeah. Um, Also, I want to know, like, how late are they at the crashdown? Because they're all there, like, partying like it's, like, 8 o'clock on a weeknight, you know? But Max was already, like, home in bed when uh, Nisado showed up at his door. So, like, how late are the rest of them all partying? And are they not worried that they're partying without Max, like a key member of their group? These are just thoughts and questions that I had in this scene. Yeah. Max bursts in to give them the news that Nisado is dead. And like me, Michael is like, well, cool, no problem. We'll just take him to the healing chamber. But first, we get to have a little moment where Tess very reasonably and nicely heals the little cut on Max's cheek. And you see Liz looking at her like, I know I can't be mad about this, but also stop touching him. Pretty much. She's like, I know I broke up with him so that you guys could be together, but I'm still sad slash mad about it. It doesn't mean she doesn't love him anymore. Yep. So anyway, so we set up the the theme here when Tess asks Max what they should do now, because Max is the leader and he has weight of the world on his shoulders and uh, it's all up to him alone. It's like the great man theory of history playing out with these children (laughs) who have been thrust into these positions. Um, so then we go to the opening credits and we come back and Kyle's back. Yay. Yay, Kyle. Kyle. We missed you. I like to imagine that the little farewell between Jim and Kyle was Jim being like, so Kyle, you've just been shot by someone who you thought was a police officer and you like trusted him. Although I guess technically he was shot by his father. So even worse, um, because someone who Kyle had trusted and thought was a colleague of his father was trying to murder them all. Then you got magically healed by someone you kind of hated you've discovered aliens are real and one of them the one you hate is dating your ex-girlfriend so football camp right sounds fun bye get out of here (laughs) i mean i think he did need to he did need to get away you know i think like football camp whatever but um it sounds like he needed kind of a break to get away and like start to process what had happened. Yeah, I think it makes more sense for Kyle's character than it does for Jim's because we saw Jim go through the anguish of almost losing his son and I feel like he wouldn't be like okay, so like go away for two months where I can't protect you or know what's going on with you. No, totally. Mm -hmm. I listened to the commentary on this episode, which was uh, Ronald D. Moore, the co-executive producer and writer on this episode. Um, He was talking about the show and he actually said this is one of his favorite storylines to have Kyle come back from football camp as a Buddhist. He said it was Jason Kadem's idea and, you know, kind of the idea that like the knowledge of aliens has rocked his whole world and that he kind of uh, adopted Buddhism as a way to deal with this. They thought it was cute and funny yeah that's really interesting so i think we're going to talk more about the buddhism in a minute um i want to point out we didn't get to hear the dandy warhol singing bohemian like you here you may know the dandy warhols from their work on veronica mars theme song Mm-hmm. Um, but instead we get nothing of value by the pattern, which I don't know, whatever. Uh, I also want to point out that in the shot where Kyle is like sitting on the ground throwing stones, there is this huge sweat stain under his arm <laughs> and it's gone in the next se- next cut. So I guess wardrobe <laughs> was like, oh, hang on, wait, mm, 
Yeah. So the the sheriff shows up to collect Kyle two hours late. Why didn't Kyle like walk home or call a taxi or call someone else and be like, hey, can I can I have a ride? Poor Kyle. Maybe he doesn't have 25 cents for the payphone, and we haven't seen Kyle with a cell phone, so perhaps he does not have one. This is true. So when Jim tells Kyle that Nasato was killed, this is where we get Kyle's first uh, Buddhist quote. My strength fails, my vitality exhausted. I cannot find the bull. I only hear the locusts cheering through the night. So I, of course, looked into this. Uh, this is from the. This is a, a slight misquote from the Ten Ox Herding Pictures of Zen, which is based on an old Taoist story that was updated by a 12th century Chinese Buddhist master to explain the path to enlightenment. Uh, so I found out a lot about this on the website of Columbia University, but I want to say I am not a Buddhist, so I don't want to get too much into what it means because that's not my area of expertise. But I think like the important takeaway from this is that this is Kyle sort of saying he's at the beginning of his search for meaning or enlightenment, which in this like allegorical teaching is expressed as the bull. So the the mm-hmm. full quote from uh, that from the translation that I found on the Columbia website was, in the pasture of the world, I endlessly push aside the tall grasses in search of the bull, following unnamed rivers lost upon the interpenetrating paths of distant mountains, my strength failing and my vitality exhausted, I cannot find the bull. I only hear the locusts chirping through the forest at night. So this is basically an expression of dissatisfaction with life and the start of the search to find true happiness and like the beginning of the acknowledgement that you're not really sure what that happiness is, but that you're not getting it from some of the more superficial things that are currently in your life. That sounds accurate for Mm, Kyle's state of mind. Yeah. Ronald D. Moore said that they got this quote from like a random Buddhist book. And I got the feeling that they didn't do a ton of research. They just like opened this book and were like, this one. Perfect. So I'm guessing uh, that the book is Buddhism Without Beliefs, A Contemporary Guide to Awakening by Stephen Batchelor, a British author and teacher who promotes secular or agnostic Buddhism. And I say this because... After Kyle has the adorable quote, I'm just not looking forward to dealing with all the little green men again. Jim is like, well, Max saved your life. And Kyle is like, well, Max is why I got shot, which is not fair. That's not accurate. But the Buddhist quote is about uh, no conditions are permanent. No conditions are reliable. Nothing is self. And so this is Mm -hmm. a paraphrase of verses 277 to 279 of the Dhammapada, which is a collection of sayings of the Buddha. Um, So these conditions, impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness or suffering and not self are known as the three marks of existence. And like every thing that I found that uses that particular um, phrasing that Kyle uses is it's all quoted as from this book. Like this is this guy's translation or paraphrase of it. Got it. So yeah, um, I I don't know how I feel about Kyle's Buddhism. So I do, uh, I do practice Buddhism, um, but it's a totally different kind of Buddhism. It's called Nichiren Daishonin Buddhism. So, um, and the the lay organization is called S. SGI. So a lot of people know it as SGI Buddhism. Um, and it's pretty different from Zen Buddhism, you know, where Zen Buddhism is kind of all about like, like that, like nothing is permanent, nothing is reliable, and kind of is about like letting go of earthly desires, 
not being materialistic. And whereas, you know, we're, it's not saying, yes, be materialistic, but Nichiren Daishonin Buddhism focuses on kind of trying to get to each person's enlightened state by happiness, right? So it's all about trying to attain your goals. And your goals might be like, I want to work towards buying a house or, you know, so it's okay to apply it to your regular life. And more materialistic desires. Yeah, because the goal is world peace through individual happiness. Instead of looking at all of the teachings of the Buddha, basically there was this man, Nichiren Daishonin, who lived in the 13th century, who looked at all the teachings of the Buddha and decided the Lotus Sutra is kind of the essence of all of it. So he focused on the Lotus Sutra. So Nichiren Daishonin Buddhism focuses on that one main sutra about uh, cause and effect. So um, yeah, it's it's pretty different from Zen Buddhism. And we could put um, some links about it in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. Um, so what I think is, is giving me pause about Kyle's Buddhism is that I think, especially in this period, but like still today, it's been trendy for white Western folk to sort of dip their toes in and say like, oh, I'm a Buddhist because I can quote this one thing that I read in this one book. And that means I'm a Buddhist and yay. Um, So I think there's a potential for it to be culturally appropriative if people aren't actually understanding like the principles uh, of Buddhism. And if you're pursuing Zen Buddhism, like that's a religion and you need to be, Mm -hmm. as always, you need to be respectful of other people's religions and their cultures and not just say, oh yeah, well like I'm claiming this as my own now because I'm interested in it. Yeah. Um, So it's certainly not to say white people can't practice Buddhism. Obviously people can and do do that respectfully but with uh, this show's track record I'm a little worried about whether that Mm. is the path they will pursue but we'll see yeah I mean there's a difference between reading a book and being like oh that's interesting I could see how some of those things would apply to me or that I could apply some of those things to my life and actually fully embracing the teachings of a religion and adopting that religion yeah I think there's also a difference between sitting in your house reading and liking things that you're reading and going out and going to temples or going and being part of the community um, in mm-hmm. SGI Buddhism we don't have temples it's uh, it's run by the lay people of the organization. So we meet in living rooms and, you know, community centers. And with that, I also feel it's the same thing. Like, it's one thing if I sit in my house and chant. So uh, the words we chant are Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, which is about cause and effect and stuff. But really, you're supposed to be part of the community and go to study meetings and go, you know, discussion meetings and communicate with other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go to, to school where Isabel starts this this thing that we see from her, which I think she's done a little bit before, where she's like, I don't want to be involved in this. I don't want to be in the middle. Max is the leader. We're just going to do what Max says. I'm just a girl. What do I know? Yeah, I don't like her constantly being pitted in the middle between the two of them and her inability to stand up and clearly articulate her own decision on the matter, whatever side it ends up on. Yeah. Ronald D. Moore also pointed out that what they're trying to do here is uh, establish the dynamic between Isabel and Michael. And then he also said something that I love, which is that Isabel is in some ways stronger than either of the two. There are some ways that she's stronger than Michael and some ways that she's stronger than Max. Um, Mm -hmm. And I kind of love that. He also pointed out on a different note that the school is all set on a soundstage. Um, They never went into a real school and they had one corridor. (laughs) He said Max was just walking down the same corridor the whole time. And then, you know, just by like changing the background and the camera angle, they like 
tried to make it look like he was like walking around the corner into another <laughs> corridor. I love it. <laughs> I think it's really funny here that Max is like, we just got to keep our heads down and blend in. And I'm like, oh, honey, that's you guys are the worst at that. You have not managed that ever. <laughs> Aren't we past that at this point? <laughs> right. Like, isn't that what you guys already tried to do and it failed? Uh, yeah. So we've got to blend in, says Max, right before shooting out like a protection shield <laughs> at an unsuspecting worker who's, by the way, in a storage room just doing a welding project. Yeah. Yeah. What the hell? So something that's interesting about that is in in early drafts of the episode, that was actually written differently that instead of it was some guy like using a blowtorch, it was um, a, it was in the eraser room and it was a kid getting high. Nice. So that, you know, he, he could just be like, well, you know, I was high. Maybe I didn't really see a force field, but the network hated it. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Because uh, nobody gets high in high school. Yeah, it's the year 2000. We cannot show kids smoking cigarettes, let alone yeah. marijuana. Right. So they had to change it to this blowtorch, which makes no sense. Yeah. Have none of them been inside of a school? Like, it could have just been a teacher gathering supplies or something. Like, I know they wanted to have it. So it was like, oh, yeah, you didn't really see what you saw. But like, this yeah. just seems so suspicious. I was like, oh, this is clearly a bad guy who's going to come back later because, like, why on earth would you be welding inside of a storage closet? First of all, very dangerous. Second of all, like, what is he supposed to be doing? Anyway, this annoyed me because we learn later Max has known how to do this shielding thing for a while. We saw Tess earlier in the first episode teaching Michael how to control his powers and how to, like, harness the power that he was tapping into. Max discovers how to do this cool thing that could come in really handy when the enemies that they know are afoot attack them, and he did not teach Michael and Isabel, and he didn't even tell them that he knew how to do this thing. That's not cool. That's not good leadership and it's not good friendship and it's not good family ship. I agree. I feel like there's a lot of breakdown of communication between all of them over the summer. Yeah. So then we go into history class where we start this whole episode long kind of parallel comparison thing with JFK. So yes, there are parallels. Yeah. However, <laughs> the way the Cuban Missile Crisis was resolved was through teamwork. Mm -hmm. That's what the parallel should have been, is like Isabella or Michael in the end being like, oh, actually, here's what we should do, not yeah. what they did, which is like, Max is the man and he tells yeah. everyone what to do and it works out great. Yay. Yeah. And Max taking their, you know, one of their advice to heart and working as a team. So I think everyone probably got that the title of this episode comes from JFK's inaugural address where he says the famous line, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Although he says it with a Boston accent, so it's way funnier. Ask um, not <laughs> what your country can do for you. I can't do it. <laughs> But we do love Kennedys in Massachusetts. Yeah. I think it's important to note that this speech continues. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. Finally, whether you are citizens of America or citizens of the world, ask of us here the same high standards of strength and sacrifice which we ask of you. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history, the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, etc., etc. But I think the... Like, with good conscience, our only sure reward is a thing that you lose when you decide to murder someone because you saw him playing with a doohickey that you would think might be alien. Yes. Also, that whole speech, I'm like, hmm, I feel like that speech, we could be taking a lot of that to heart right now as a country. Yeah. What, whatever do you mean, Lorena? That's all I thought. 
Yeah. I was like, oh, this is like such a parallel to like what should be happening right now in our world in the midst of a pandemic. But alas, that's a whole different parallel we could be going down right now. And let's not. Let's not. Yeah. Instead, let's go to the UFO museum where when I first saw this exterior, I was like, oh my gosh, finally, we're going to the UFO museum. We're going to get some answers about Milton. Maybe he's going to be here. Are we going to see him? I know we're not going to see him because IMDb says we're not, but they'll definitely at least acknowledge Milton and tell us what happened. No, no, they're not going to. They're not going to do that. Okay, great. They're not going to do it. It's fine. Just take away everything I care about show. It's fine. I got some answers about Milton. Ooh. So Ronald D. Moore kind of explained it. And he said they decided to get a new owner because they wanted the UFO Center to become more dark and serious. And they felt Milton was too comedic. Mm. But I have faith that Milton could have turned it around. Yes. I have faith that that character could have been developed. Yeah. If they wanted to bring in Brody, they could have brought him in as a, as an investor. You know, the, the UFO Museum is yes. not doing well financially. We have this freaking kid with a bunch of money like we could have had both and then we would have had milton for a little bit of levity yeah mm-hmm. i mean brody could have come in as just like a new employee at the ufo center Mm-hmm. i like the investor idea though so many different ways that we could have had brody come in and kept milton yes we could have had both we could have had both because i love i love where brody goes but i want milton to stay yeah yeah so i don't know where brody goes but he's set up to seem really creepy which makes me think that he's just gonna be fine in the end um i i do i want to just point out that he is played by the excellently named desmond askew what a great name I feel like he picked that name for himself when he had to register for a SAG. Maybe. Because if you have a com... Well, whatever your name is, you... I mean, you can pick what you want for SAG. And if you have a common name that somebody else has already registered with, you have to register with a different name, whether it's including your middle name or something. So maybe he just has a super boring name. So we go outside to this park bench where Max just happens upon Tess sitting there and he's like, are you okay? And I would be like, bruh, like the guy who raised her essentially as her father brainwashed her, probably was pretty abusive to her in a number of different ways, like just died, which is something she thought literally was impossible. No, she's not okay. And then I have questions which start like sort of in the next scene. But like, what has Tess been doing over the summer? Who's taking care of her when she goes back to school? Like, Mm -hmm. who are they saying her guardian is? Has she been living in this house by herself? I think so. I think she's just been living in the house by herself. And, you know, Nacedo is like paying the rent or whatever. Um, So she's just continued existing in that space. I feel badly for Tess. She's going through so much and like no one's really offering her support, it Mm -hmm. seems. And that was kind of the point of this scene um, in the commentary. He said that they wanted to make Tess more likable and sympathetic um, because the home of the show is the Max and Liz relationship. So, you know, he knew that just by bringing Tess in, she was going to be hated. So they kind of they tried to make her a more sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Right. And I love that. So, like, obviously, of course, because Liz and Marie are talking about how Max doesn't care about Tess, they then see them walking down the street together. So, like, we're, we're obviously mm-hmm. going back to this dynamic of like, oh, yeah, Liz still hates Tess, even though she and Max aren't together. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I like that Tess acknowledges that, like, people hate her and she's aware of it and it affects her mm-hmm. it's it's really stinks it's not cool yeah. i also though so this is where where max is walking to his home she offers to like 
show him some memory retrieval tricks to recover memories of home. And so this got me thinking, like, so if the other aliens know Tess has some memories of home, I cannot believe that they wouldn't be all over that. Especially Michael. Like, this is all he's wanted his whole life is to know what it's like on their home planet and, like, what the Mm -hmm. other people are like. I cannot believe that none of them would have asked her this, especially because we saw Michael and Tess hanging out. Yeah. Uh, something that's cute that he said in the commentary was that a lot of the cast and crew used to hang out in the Valenti's house, in the set of the Valenti's house. They would just go, like, nap on the couches and sometimes oh bring gosh. instruments and jam. <laughs> so I thought that was cute. Now that the Valenti house is stable. <laughs> yeah. So we cut to Kyle the next morning, 7 a.m. on the dot, rolls out of bed, straight into push-ups. <laughs> Love it. Amazing. Fantastic. So intense. Why is Tess not wearing pants? She's a guest in someone's yeah. home. Not cool. And then we have this moment where she snaps the waistband of Kyle's boxers. So inappropriate. Not okay. Yeah, I don't like it. Also, if they were trying to make Tess likable, this was not a good move. You know, she's like yeah. too forward. She's like too comfortable in their house. Not really like a thank you vibe. I was also pissed that Jim didn't tell Kyle. Yeah, even if it's late. Yeah, it's so bizarre. Um, also, y'all, importantly, we miss out on hearing the song Jenny, better known as 8675309. There's like oh a God. punky rock version of this song by a band called Crease. Not the original by Tommy Two-Tone, but like a aggressive rock version. And we don't get to hear it. And I'm so sad. I want to go Aww. find that. And then we head to Whitaker's office, where we get to see a little more of her, and she is pining over Pierce and missing him and wants to know if he has called. And Liz decides to do this weird thing where... What she, the hell? Like, I don't know if she's, like, try, like sisterhood thing. She, like, decides to tell Whitaker that he called and broke up with her via a voicemail, but then Liz deleted the voicemail because she didn't think Whitaker would want to hear it, that it would be too painful. Why not just say he called and I spoke to him? Which is a lot more sensible than being like, there was physical evidence of this, but I chose to delete it because I think you, my boss, are not emotionally capable of processing this, which to be fair, Whitaker clearly isn't. Yeah. Yeah. So I generally liked the commentary, but there was a moment here that I found kind of surprising where he said, he said, this is a good lie. We turned these teenagers into good liars, to which I say, (laughs) what? How do you watch this scene and think this is a good lie? <laughs> my my note on this scene is literally, Liz is still a mediocre liar. Yeah. So bad. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was just like, really, Ronald? Really? It does seem as though Liz just discovered makeup over the summer because suddenly oh, yeah. she is wearing a ton of blush. So much yes. blush. So then we go to school where the teacher is still on the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's obviously this history teacher's, like, favorite, like, part of U.S. history. Like, this, he is living his life. This is his time to shine. And then we head back to the UFO Center where Max decides he's gonna snoop around all of Brody's new equipment and see what's going on. So the restricted area, which used to be upstairs, has helpfully moved downstairs. And it's developed a sophisticated keycard system that Max can just power through. Mm-hmm. And we find that the office, uh, has, in its migration from upstairs to downstairs, has acquired a very fancy Mac. Max finds the important information that there was a pulse of energy that happened on May 
14th. Presumably this is when they use the communicators. And then this is when he sees the alien device. And Brody comes along and is like, bro, don't touch that, you dummy. What are you doing? Why are you even in here? How did you get in here? I installed all this fancy security equipment and here you are in my private office. What the fuck, bro? So Ronald D. Moore also talked about the Macintosh product placement here. He said that they um, they gave them a lot of goodies and they wanted this connection because they needed someone to give them cool gear, you know, alien looking stuff and whatever. He also explained that the UFO center is all like one half of a soundstage. And because the walls are often like black sheets in front of a wall, like black curtains, that they could always move them um, to manipulate the space and make it look different. I mean, it'd be a good way to lay out a museum in reality to have sort of movable temporary walls so you could like change yeah. the format for different installations and stuff. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brody takes the extremely reasonable step here of firing Max. Get out. Don't come back. Because <laughs> Max has I, either like hidden so he could stay after work or just broken in and has definitely broken into the restricted area. Yeah, which he did not have authorization to enter and was locked. Yep, but uh, Max isn't the only one showing up in workplaces inappropriately because Maria is just visiting Liz while she's at work and Liz is always at work. Like, how many hours does she put into this unpaid internship? And why is she the only employee at this place? Like, Whitaker talks about her paid staff, but where are they? They're gone. Yeah, it looks like a tiny office. She realized Liz could do everything, so she fired the people she was paying to save money so that she could just have Liz work for free and she could have more money for her campaign. Ronald D. Moore did touch on uh, Maria's appearance, which we talked a lot about last episode that like suddenly all everyone looks like older and sexier and you know he felt like the drastic change in her look was not a good thing but he said that Mahandra didn't really want to wear the spunky look from the first season anymore so her outfits became more attractive and more sexual she wanted to be more grown up and sexy yeah and that he was afraid they would like lose the feeling of the character she was super attractive last season too right yeah yeah She was super attractive with her short little flippy flippy hair and her funky clothes. And then we see further evidence that Whitaker is just atrocious at her job because she is getting wasted in the middle of the day and shredding important government documents. But is, I mean, she's definitely shredding important documents, but is she wasted? Dun dun dun! Yes. And super inappropriately, she asks her unpaid underage intern, You ever been in love, Parker? (laughs) Yeah, this scene is just crazy. Yeah, I don't like this. And then she asks, who moved in on your man? Like, what? It's it's always the other woman's fault. It's nothing that the man could have possibly done. He has no responsibility for this. It is that tramp. This is the first of two times that Tess gets called a tramp in this episode, and it is not cool. Yeah, I hate the mindset that it's obviously the other girl's fault. It's both of y'all's fault. Either be in an open relationship or be honest and break up with the person. Right. But then, so the uh, the the big aha moment is when Liz leaves and Whitaker is suddenly sober and she's uh, she's contemplating Tess. Hmm. Like, ooh, did I just find an alien? Did I? Like, what is what is she thinking here? Like. Is she suspicious? This is where I start wondering, like, is there something else to the congresswoman? Is she a new villain for us? Is she, like, 
I don't know. We'll get to it in unanswered questions. Yeah. You're just going to have to wait. Also, one thing that Ronald D. Moore said about this scene, which I thought was cute, he said that um, earlier rights had her saying, I'm going to shred this man right out of my hair. Yes! Adorable! But they ended up not being able to use it because their rights were too expensive. I was going to say, I love a good musical theater reference. Yeah. Oh, what a bummer. Also a bummer is Tess, again, not wearing pants, and this time wearing Kyle's jersey? Yeah. And indicating that she's naked under it? Yeah. This is not helping win us over to the test side. No, it's really not. This is, she's been in the house for maybe 24 hours at this point. She is way too familiar with the house and with Kyle's stuff and with Kyle and I don't like it. I do really appreciate Kyle in this scene when he's like, that's my jersey. And Tessa's like, oh, I'll just take it off for you. Kyle turns around like a gentleman because he's like, mm-hmm. this, is not, this is not how this should go. Um, and then Tess has some gross lines. And I really enjoy Kyle's rejoinder of, listen, I don't know how you do things on planet Vulcan or whatever, but here on Earth, we have this primitive human concept called privacy. Eliza, did Ronald D. Moore mention that he put a Star Trek reference in his episode as a shout out to his past projects? Not in this very moment, but uh, yeah, he talked a lot about Star Trek for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And what she says is, I'll slag you with my death ray eyes. I'm sorry, slag is... First of all, British slang for slut, so I don't know how it works here. And then as a verb, it means like to criticize harshly with words. So I'm not sure why it was in this sentence. Kyle is like, listen, this whole aliens are among us thing really screwed me up, made me question stuff, life, reality, my place in this universe, and you don't understand. You people turn my life upside down. I need a little clarity. I need a little peace of mind. I'm like, okay, Kyle, this makes sense. But what also makes sense is Tessa's response of, no, I don't understand. I'm a girl from another planet, no family, no friends, only three other people like me in the world, and the man I grew up with, the man who raised me, he was just murdered. You're right, Kyle. What would I know about needing peace of mind? I'm like, yeah, Tess. Yes. Yeah, good for you, Maybe Tess. Maybe put on some pants before you say it, but good point. <laughs> I also was reminded of Faith from Buffy. And how she mm-hmm. was like on her own and the adults really let her down. Except that Jim Valenti is noticing that Tess is alone and needs support. Mm-hmm. So I like that like there is an adult looking out for her here. And you can tell that Kyle really heard what she said. Because right after she leaves the room, he says in like this soft, sad voice, he says sorry. Yeah, I hope that they get more scenes together and develop this I feel like they'll turn it into a romance because that's what this show does. When you have a boy and a girl, they have to have smoochies. But I I like that they can sort of understand something about each other that Mm -hmm. they don't seem to talk about with the group at large. Yeah. Um, So then we go to this, like, park. They're on some bleachers, and Max is telling Michael and Isabel about the device. Michael is suspicious about Milton selling the museum to Brody, and so am I. Yes. Why would he sell? He loved that place. Maybe he took all the money for the buyout to go build another UFO museum. Maybe he'll come back. Maybe he took some time off to go, you know, achieve some dreams and goals and will come back. Milton, oh Milton, I want you adult. You showed up to work when slacking is the Oh, Milton, why did you dis- 
back to us, Milton. Now, Michael is speculating that Brody might have been the one to kill Macedo, and he's curious about how Brody would know about May 14th and why he would be interested in it, and makes what I think is a really illogical leap, that Brody being interested in May 14th means that he must be a murderous alien! Well, obviously. He must have killed both Macedo and Milton. Yeah. yeah. What? How? What? No, Michael, no. And then we get the line, what do you want to do next, fearless leader? Which I kind of yeah. love because it's very sassy. <laughs> yeah. And Max really lets this go to his head. He says, like, we're not voting on this, Michael. And they're like, they're butting heads. He's just kind of implied, like, I'm the leader and I make this decision. Mm-hmm. Well, I do think it's cute that Michael's first suggestion is breaking into the UFO center because that is his hobby. And yes. Max is taking that hobby on, too, as we saw earlier in this episode. Yep. And and Michael's about to do it again also. You know, they, everyone just loves breaking into the UFO center. Yeah. Max points out that their best bet is to keep Brody from knowing who they are and that they're involved in this in any way. And also with all this breaking in, I didn't see anybody fall through that chute. I know. So how are they breaking in? They need to be coming through the chute from like the roof or wherever. Yeah, maybe Michael's using his rock blasting power to blast through those, some of those locks on the doors. I don't know. Yeah. They also are just really buying into these roles that they've been told they have. Like, a Mm -hmm. projection of someone who claimed to be your mother, you have no idea how accurate any of this is. Like, this could all have just been lies sent by your enemies. Um, But they're really taking this to heart, and Michael is like, I think you used to listen to me because I was your second-in-command. And Max is like, well, I'm the leader. I'm the only one that matters. But of course, Michael is like, okay, so we agreed not to break into the UFO center. What should I do? Ooh, I know. I'll break into the UFO center. (laughs) That's, I mean, it tracks for Michael. It does. But then this thing happens where Brody is holding the device. He's, like, looking at it quizzically. And then this beam of light shoots out and knocks over Michael. And then Michael gets up. Like, we have a little commercial break. And then Michael basically gets up and leaves. And as soon as he's through the door, Brody is like, I cannot follow him any further. This is the end of the line. I shan't pursue. I cannot exit the building. (laughs) So I think this was the first time that Ronald D. Moore uh, brought up Star Trek. And he said Mm. that that pulse wave effect was directly inspired by a similar effect at the beginning of Star Trek VI, when the Klingon moon Praxis blows up. He said Praxnar. But when I looked it up, I couldn't find a Praxnar, and it's Praxis. Oh, well, he did a lot of spacey stuff. Maybe he just forgot. (laughs) I mean, there was a lot of spacey stuff on that resume. You can't expect him to remember everything. Yeah. This is fair. So then we get probably, like, my least favorite part of this episode, where... Uh, they're talking about what to do, and Isabel stands up for Michael, which is nice, and then decides they have to kill Brody, which is extraordinarily stupid. Very extreme. Yeah. It's, it's totally out of character. Like, remember in the first episode when what they decided what differentiated them from the bad aliens is that they don't kill people. Like, Nisado wanted to kill people to keep them from potentially killing the aliens, and Max was like, no, we don't do that. And, like, Isabel has been so anti-violence. She's, like, so about using your brain to figure out the best way out of situations. And just, like, like, fitting in and wanting to be with her human family. And And now she's like, let's just murder him. And her justification is, oh, he used an alien weapon. What human could do that? But, like, you you don't actually know. Do they know that humans can't use alien weapons? Because humans use the healing stones. So, like, what makes them assume that there's something alien about him just because he picked up this device and used it, which we know he didn't even consciously use it. Like, it just happened. 
Yeah, he looked surprised when it happened. Isabel's like, we're at war. It's him or us, and I choose us. I'm like, you have literally no evidence of this. He's just some poor schmo. It's so extreme for Izzy. Yeah, she suddenly just became, like, hard. Yeah, Eliza, can you go back to the commentary and ask Ronald D. Moore what he was thinking? So he did, he did mention. Oh, great. He did mention this. He said, so he said, um... That this argument is between Max and Michael, but that really it's Isabel's scene. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're always arguing, but now she's gotten to the point of murder. And so they tried to make it that, like, she's getting harder. It's a shocking moment, and her character is developing beyond the shallow teenage girl things. I agree with you that it it's just, it's too... It's too quick. It's too stark. Yeah. You know, like, they didn't show us the, her process of getting to uh, up to that point of murder all of a sudden it's just like isabel being like let's kill someone right yeah we just see her being i don't want to be in the middle i don't want to be in the middle let's kill him yeah and also so max goes along with this after having been like we don't kill people michael goes along with this after having spent the entire summer agonizing about killing a man in self-defense so all of a sudden Mm -hmm. now he's just cool with murder he's like well my conscience already has murder on it so i might as well just do as many of them as i feel like Mm-hmm. And this freaking teacher is still on the Cuban Missile Crisis. He cannot get through this unit. Oh my gosh, dude. I told you, it's his face. favorite It's his favorite part of history. He is living his life. He is talking about JFK. He is doing his thing. It also is good to mention here that Ronald D. Moore brought up that this teacher is played by a guy who played a Klingon in Deep Space yeah. Nine. Oh! So we go to the scene that I think is alternately cute and terrible. Um, I do really love Maria's, like, 60s-looking thing she's got going on. Mm -hmm. The hair, the headband, the outfit, it's all very cute and, like, very mod. She looks adorable. I feel like it's, like, a Jackie O-type look. Yeah, totally. You know, kind of sticking with the JFK thing. I do like that they're developing this friendship where, like, Max is confiding in her. He says, I'm supposed to be this great leader, but I don't know how to make these kinds of decisions. I don't have this kind of insight. I'm like, you know what you do then is you do what JFK did and you talk to your advisors. You don't try to make this decision on your own. You talk to your second in command who is supposed to help you. And then I love Maria being like, so I actually have no idea what you're talking about. I haven't been in any of the scenes (laughs) in this show where you guys are like doing whatever you're doing. So like, I'm not really sure what's going on here. So I am just going to say JFK, he's not so great, cheated on his wife. And she's like, that's something you have in common. You're both involved with tramps. I'm like, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. First of all, how dare you, Maria, refer to both Tess and Marilyn Monroe as tramps. Calm down. And I mean, there were a lot of other women, to be fair, like JFK was not awesome and definitely had sex with a number of people who worked for him in the White House. Not cool, not okay. But he's the one to judge about that. Not the women. Right. Not the women. Mm -hmm. Not the 19-year-old who was like a secretary or receptionist or intern or something. Like, no, 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 no. No. And it honestly doesn't matter how old someone is or what their role is. There's always going to be a power dynamic if one of those people is the president. Sure. Um, but of course, so we're talking about these like life and death issues. And then Maria mentions that Liz saw him with Tess and he's like, Bruh? it's like the cartoons where you see like his attention totally changes. And she's like, Whoa. <laughs> like, just let them figure it out for themselves, Maria. We're done with this. I do think it's adorable here that Maria accuses Max of playing patty cake with Tess this is a reference to the phenomenal movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Love it. Love it. Love it. Oh, so good. But then Maria says her final advice to Max is just try and follow your heart. Isn't that what the great leaders always do? 
Maria. No, literally never. That's not how anyone rules. And Max's heart apparently is saying, yes, let's indeed go kill this man. I agree with you, Isabel. Let's go murder. Do not. Do not listen to your heart, Max, please. No, you use that brain, buddy. Come on. Also, I want to point out that this scene is on a soundstage. It's indoors. Mm. And I oh. thought they did a pretty good job of lighting it to make yeah. it seem like it's outdoors. There was like a little breeze and all these people walking by them are mm-hmm. literally just walking back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> but OK, so I like the that the flashbacks to like all the terrible things that have happened are what stopped them from doing this. But it should have been mm-hmm. Michael. It shouldn't have been Max because Michael is the one suffering from all this guilt over killing Pierce. And, like, I I understand Max and his... Like, it really should have been all of them. Like, Michael could have had the flashbacks to killing Pierce. Um, Max could have had the flashbacks to being tortured. And then Isabel could have had flashbacks to whatever. You know, there are plenty of things for her to sort of think about and, like, reflect on and be like, oh, wait, this is actually not the right course of action. Yeah, this is not who we are. Yeah, which is what Matt says. We can't do this. This isn't us. Then Isabel and Michael push back on him. Michael says, Brody's dead. End of subject. I'm like, this just isn't how any of these characters that we've set up so far would react to this. This seems like a really big shift for all of them. Right. Mm -hmm. Which I think is showing how scared they are. That, like, you know, it none of them had been killed yet. Um, and now someone they were close to, relatively, um, was just murdered by other aliens. And I think they're just, like, really scared. So jumping to conclusions that they shouldn't. And yes, it is, but it is out of character. I do agree. Do you know what would have been super awesome? Is if they had brought in Tess and had her, like, mind warp Brody into thinking that she was, like, someone he was really close to or whatever and, like, try to get him to say what he actually knew about all this. Like, to somehow trick him into revealing his plan without harming him in any way and then she could just, like, bloop-doop-bloop and then he would never even know anything had happened. Like, she has power to mind warp people. They're not using it, really? Because they don't like her. I mean, tough nugget. Well, they were all dancing with her at the beginning. That's true. So, like, she's clearly not a total outcast. Yeah. Anyway, there was a lot of options they could have done besides murder, is what we're saying here. But Max decides instead he's going to sneak up on Brody. And Brody rightfully points out that this is not a situation in which he should be feeling compelled to answer any of Max's questions. But he doesn't call the police and chooses to answer Max's questions because he thinks that Max is like him adorably. Like, I do I do enjoy the little play here where Max mm-hmm. thinks that Brody is telling him he's a fellow alien and Brody thinks Max is telling him he's a fellow abductee. I like this whole scene. And I, I like that Brody points out here the difference between the way people are treated when they have religious experiences and when they have alien abduction experiences. Mm-hmm. This is a good point and something worth thinking about. Mm-hmm. Very true. But Brody's story is that he was abducted seven years ago, reappeared two days later in another state with his terminal cancer having been cured. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum. And he's been trying to remember the facts of that missing time through memory therapy. Right. And he's trying to find ways to reestablish contact with the aliens. And also, he said he was driving on the Massachusetts Turnpike. Yeah. To which I say two things. Woot woot. <laughs> and uh, it's called the Mass Pike. Nobody calls it the Massachusetts Turnpike. Yeah. But um, hell yeah. 
So Brody gives us this information. This is like an exposition dump here where he's like, oh, I bought this device from some guy. It came to life on May 14th. I had these people check the telescope, radio telescope network for anything unusual. They found a signal originating in Roswell. That is why I'm here. Dun, dun, dun. But then we go back to the crash down where everyone's hanging out uh, and Alex is here. We don't get enough of Alex in this episode. I'm very sad. Um, but this is where we find out that Brody supposedly got the money from helping to take an internet startup public, and then when he started talking about his abduction experiences publicly, instead of just firing him, they were like, here's $300 million, please go away and shut up. Yeah, we'll just buy you out. (laughs) I mean, sounds great. Who do I need to talk to about that deal? Yeah. Because I, I, yeah, all aliens everywhere, totally, they got me, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so Brody had told them the device sent out a pulse. They figure out it's probably just because Michael was near, so he wasn't actually using the device, which is a possibility they should have considered before deciding to murder him. And Alex, I think, very smartly asks, well, like, why would it react to Michael in that way, but not react to Max? Who knows? We don't know. Something funny in the commentary that uh, Ronald D. Moore talked about is that um, at this point, Katie Heigl and Jason Bear were, like, starting to date, and... He said that, you know, the people working on the show kind of were like, are they touching each other too much? Like, do you touch your sister like that? And then they started obsessing over it. Like, do, do you look at your sister like that? Is that a normal way to look at your sister? <laughs> I think they got like really bogged down in it. Mm-hmm. So we get really good Kyle here where he's just like being nice to Tess, who is in a purple leopard halter top. Love she only it. owns halter top. She's not allowed to wear anything else. She must be so cold all the time. But he's telling her that... He's going to give her his bedroom and he'll sleep on the couch so she can put her pants on behind closed doors every morning before she comes out to interact with the people who are letting her stay in their home. Excellent. So, great. And uh, Kyle says material possessions only clutter the mind anyway, showing that he has been absorbing some of his teachings. (sighs) To which Tess responds, you tell him, Buddha boy. (sighs) Tess, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's cute. That's very Tess. And then we see Courtney, who I literally was just thinking as I watched this episode to take my notes. I'm like, damn, where's that girl Courtney? Like, we just met in the last episode and like they've been in the crash down like multiple times this episode. Like, when are we going to see her again? And then like, oh, look, there she is being totally inappropriate to Michael. And one thing I forgot to mention about the whole like Maria, Michael, Courtney dynamic that Ronald talked about is he said that you know Mahandra and Brendan were kind of on again off again and maybe off again at this point and he said that Brendan was kind of into the actress who played Courtney so that that dynamic was kind of real like it it paralleled real life ah yeah isn't that weird and I I appreciate Tess being like hey so like our problems aren't actually over like you didn't you didn't just solve this even though this 42 minute episode is is coming to an end like we still got problems out there dude there's still a murderer out there and they're probably close by. Yeah. Ooh, and then cut to Courtney needing to use the bathroom. And what the fuck? She's a skin. She just peels off her face and flushes it down the toilet. What a way to end an episode. Yeah. Even Ronald D. Moore called this out as being really bad CGI. He was like, that's why we cut from it so quickly. It's like fine as she's doing like on her neck because that's just like makeup. And then suddenly it's just like when she gets the whole face off, it's it's bad. Well, and the whole face is probably a physical thing, too, that they probably built like by putting 
like by putting a thin layer of I don't know latex like, or something making a plaster mold of her face yeah like doing like a, a latex peel of it but mm-hmm. the actual CGI of when she's peeling it off is bleh. yeah um, she very wisely flushes her discarded face, which I appreciate. That's smart. Mm-hmm. I don't know why she or whoever else has just been leaving hands and arms and stuff lying <laughs> around. Because it seems like maybe this, like, she got a hold of it early so she could peel it and the other ones were just shedding and she didn't notice. Yeah. But that doesn't make a lot of sense. You would think they would, like, realize this was evidence that they should be collecting. But anyway, what I really hate is that she flushes her face down the toilet and then turns without washing her washing hands her to hands. go back to her job in food service. Yep. Uh. Which, like, touching her skin, wash your hands, but she also touched the handle of the toilet. Yep. Is there not a sign that says employees must wash hands after flushing faces? Ugh. There should be that sign. <laughs> <laughs> there definitely should be. Uh, all right. And with that note, Let's wrap up our episode. Uh, Lisa, do you have any questions? (laughs) Oh, do I? So, okay. First question, where are the parents? Always a question. Yeah. We talked about my question about does Whitaker ever go to Washington? Why is her only employee a high school age unpaid intern? Does Lisa go to school? How many hours is she putting in there? (laughs) Maybe this is just something to think about. Like, Tess has been through so much trauma in her past. The way she was raised by Nisado was really messed up, um, definitely gave her a skewed sense of what the world is and how she should interact with other people. Um, so, like, and, like, then Nisado died, right? And as terrible as he was, he's the only parental figure she's ever had. Yeah. So I really, I think they should just have a lot more sympathy for her. Even when I disagree with her actions, I totally, like, I totally sympathize with Tess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, now that we have addressed some of our unanswered questions, let's move on to hot and saucy. Now let's see who's hot and saucy. So what are y'all's picks for hot and saucy this week? Um, My pick, it's kind of a twofer when Liz calls Maria out and basically like kicks her out like leave me to do my work and it's because uh maria is looking hot and liz is saucy hmm. I yeah. like it. <laughs> does that does that work yeah it's our podcast whatever you want to do <laughs> works good thank you i went with kyle because he's being nice to tess even though she is a terrible house guest uh, he recognizes that she's going through something, and it's like we're getting to see the more sensitive, sweet side of Kyle, which is also pretty hot, but he doesn't lose his sauciness. He has some like witty repartee with Tess. I think it's very nice, and I also appreciate that he isn't just like, ooh, pantsless girl in my bed. He's like, yo, what what are you doing? Get your act together. Come on. Th- this isn't how we behave in other people's homes. Yeah. Nice. Okay, my hot and saucy is probably an unpopular pick, but I am going with Courtney (laughs) this week. Um, So specifically the moment when she starts talking to Michael about piercings and like she makes him so uncomfortable. Like I don't like the conversation, but I like a bold woman. Like she knows what she wants and she's like being very bold and direct and i like a bold woman so not the conversation (laughs) itself 
I get that. Okay. She makes me very uncomfortable, too, I just have to say. (laughs) (laughs) So now we just need Lisa's predictions. So based on the episode title, Surprise, for episode three, what do you see happening for our pod squad? So I think there will be a surprise involving the Congress lady. So I think she's either from a government agency that's way better at being secretive than the special unit was, (laughs) or she is an evil alien using her power and influence and access to classified materials to locate the other aliens so she can kill them or like brainwash them or something. Um, I think we'll hopefully at some point find out if it was her who killed Miss Sado. Um, it could have been Courtney because we know now that she has gross skin issues. Um, <laughs> but if Whitaker is is an evil alien, or if she's a like more confident FBI person, she would have means, motive, and opportunity for killing Nisado. But I will say, given Nisado's just complete disgustingness, it it would have been uh, very easy for Courtney to lead him into a dark alley with her because he's a gross perv and I hate him. Rest in peace. Uh, in any case, I think this congressperson is very, very bad at her job, and she will definitely be losing her congressional seat in the next election. Nice. I think that's a good prediction, for sure. <laughs> yes. Oh, I also predict that I will continue to be horrified by the wardrobe choices. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks on Tuesday, September 29th with Season 2, Episode 3, Surprise. Be sure to check out our social media. We have a giveaway going on right now, so follow us on Instagram and Twitter for all the details on that. And if you need that information on how to follow us on social media, if you are not doing that already, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Roswell Hot Sauce, and we also have a Facebook page. As always, you can find show notes and more information at roswellhotsauce.com and email us at roswellhotsauce at gmail.com. Pass the Hot Sauce is produced and edited by Ashley Hullett. Our theme music is by David Belcourt, and our logo was designed by Billy Murray. Until next time. No conditions are permanent. No conditions are reliable. Nothing is self.